This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have a guest that I am extremely excited to have on, Mr. Brian Thornton from ProWriters. What's going on, Brian? Everything, right? In the cyber <laughs> universe, uh, you know, it's just one big breach after another. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a been lot nuts. going on, as always. And truthfully, you know, we're we're delayed in starting the podcast recording because I just got notification that one of my clients um, in the uh, the cyber and, and tech ENO space just got served with a class action lawsuit. So excellent! I got that going for me this afternoon, which is nice. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. But uh, in the spirit of that, why don't you uh, why don't you give everybody? I didn't even realize that you were on the carrier side at one point mm. until we started talking. So why don't you give everybody sort of what your background is and how you got to where you are today, and then we'll dive into pro writers and, and what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my yeah, background, I started in the 90s, you know, AIG, then Chubb, uh, then Hiscox, and focused on uh, E&O, uh, professional management lines. At AIG, it was like Fortune 500 style business, heavily manuscripted forms, uh, you know, really technical, uh, large risks. Uh, and then at Chubb, a lot more of the same. And then at Hiscox, focused on the large as well as the SME business uh, and ran their tech and cyber practice for a number of years. Uh, and so got to know a lot of the different brokers on the retail side, the wholesale side. And then about in 2013, we started ProWriters. And so, uh, you know, what I saw was an opportunity to kind of automate some of the underwriting and brokerage process uh, to make it easier for brokers to be able to get terms, uh, to be able to compare them. Uh, and so, you know, cyber has evolved heavily even since we started ProWriters in 2013 uh, to, you know, a, a must more of a must-have product for a lot of small businesses that probably never thought they would need it before. Certainly with kind of ransomware and social engineering and things where companies said, oh, I don't have a lot of data, so I don't necessarily need this. Now uh, we're, we're seeing a lot more kind of demand for the product um, and we're seeing a ton more losses, right, driven by ransomware, social engineering. Uh, and so I've been on that side on the underwriting side for the majority of the time and, and been on the brokerage side now since 2013 building that out and, and kind of rolling this out to independent agents all over the country. Uh, and so we're seeing kind of certainly rapid growth uh, with the platform uh, and the automation it brings downstream to the brokers. You know, we've just, you know, seen phenomenal growth and part of that's the market, right? It's, it's really difficult. So brokers are getting a lot of risks that have claims or being non-renewed or 
terms are changing and they need to market it. And that, and that's where I think we come in and, and bring value. Well, I mean, it was only a matter of time till we had really good actuarial data. You know, you have to have policies in force before you see claims come in. And, you know, I, I liken the whole cyberspace and, and even the techie, you know, and all of that to where EPLI was. A lot of people do when it first came out. You know, all the agents heard about it. They read about it in rough notes or someplace. Yeah. They decided they wanted to go out and flex their knowledge and represent it at the point of sale. And they're talking about it like they understand the product selling it all day long, every day, pricing was thinner than it needed to be, and then the claims happened, yep. and then boom. Hard market rates went up, so did retentions. Um, appetite constricted rapidly. And, and you know, I don't know if we're 100% there yet with cyber and tech E&O, but I can tell you we're getting close, man, especially for people who are working with managed services providers. Yeah. I mean, those are almost impossible to get reasonable terms on at this point because there's just so much exposure there that they have no control of. Yeah, I'd kind of we I'd been talking with kind of people in the industry about that for a long time where I just never understood from the underwriting perspective there's no way to understand how much data an MSP potentially has. They could sign up one client and that client could have a million records on their server and they wouldn't know. <laughs> right? So it's impossible to kind of judge yep. the, that exposure. And so we do kind of place them every day and we're getting a lot of complaints from them saying or their brokers saying your pricing's way too expensive. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, in reality, it was just underpriced for so long that everyone got used to it being underpriced. And now I think, you know, there's a lot of people don't want to quote them, so there's not that many markets that will. So it's going to cost more, you know, traditional kind of supply and demand. And then you couple that with a traditional kind of harder market right now, you know, that's exacerbating the issue. But, you know, MSPs are targets because they're that, that kind of, you know, single point of entry to get to 200 clients. You know, the, yeah, they're a gateway, man. Yeah, the hackers. They're, they're a gateway to so many other yeah, people. Yeah, hackers want to target them, and I, you know, it makes sense. And so it's, you know, it's a real challenge, I think, on the underwriting side. But that that's kind of that bigger, larger exposure when you talk about uh, cyber being kind of like EPL. I would say I agree with that analogy, and I also think sometimes I think about it like property, and that you've got kind of that. It's almost like hurricane cat exposure. Everyone's always worried about one event that's mm -hmm. going to trigger all their policies on the carrier side. You know, whether that's, you know, a Google or an AWS go down or something like that, uh, that then trigger all these other policies. And so, you know, that's another challenge to manage the aggregation. And just, you know, with an MSP, it's the same kind of issue that you could see, you know, hundreds of claims. Well, and I think the other thing, too, is even if you sell an MSP a policy, what are the chances that the agent is actually offering them adequate limits, right? I mean, yeah. what are adequate limits for an MSP? Yeah. I don't even know where you started. Just like you said, how do you even define that? And to your point, you know, I, I've even got this on some of my larger cyber and, and tech E&O risks. They're stacked programs at this yeah. point with a primary layer and, and one and sometimes two excess layers. And that adds its own level of complications to everything, you know, because everybody's got to get along in the event of a claim and determine who's going to do what and yeah. all of that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, so yeah. is that just going to take more claims to, to figure out how to price it? I mean, is, is there really any other option i mean that's the the main data point right yeah you know it'll be more claims until well to me until it's like writing yeah 
Yeah, it's like writing workers' comp on a roofer. You, you know, yeah. we know that you're a roofer. We know that you're climbing around on roofs. We know that at some point there's probably going to be some sort of an accident, but you can only charge so much premium or the roofers aren't going to be able to operate yeah. or they're right. going to operate sloppily with no insurance. And I think that's probably where where you head in this situation, yeah. right? I mean, I, I literally talked to a managed services provider one time and we were talking about general liability and professional liability and all of that. And he, he said... I need to understand why I need any of this. Why can't I just shut, you know, if something somebody sues me, just shut down my <laughs> LLC and open yeah. up under another one. Yeah. I remember yeah, this. And I mean, how do you even deal with somebody when that's the mentality that they have? Yeah. yeah I mean, that I don't is, think you do. That's, ultimately, you kind say, of, that's ultimately where that heads, right? They buy the limits that they can afford. Uh, and if they get hit with some massive issue, you know, they're going to have to shut their doors because they wouldn't have been able to afford enough limits. But that's kind of, you know, fortunately, we haven't seen those types of events, or at least I haven't seen those kind of industry shaking events where MSPs get get crushed. But, you know, for a small one, for a mill limit, you know, they're looking at a $10,000 deductible and kind of starting at $7,500. Uh, and they were probably paying $1,200. And a lot of the carriers, they get misclassified and people missed it. So it would get put in as a software developer or co-location. It would get put in something that wasn't triggering MSP at the carrier level. And so a lot of carriers had them on the books and didn't even realize it. And it was, you know, a $1,500 policy um, hmm. because it gets put in the wrong way. So that's, a, you know, another challenge. I think underwriters are certainly doing a better job of looking for MSPs and saying yeah, quick decline. No, thank you. Uh, so that's, you know, adding another challenge to the market. I think one of the, before we jump into your platform and how slick it is, I, I, I want to bring something else up too. And I have to be careful because obviously we have contracts with direct carriers nationally. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a big difference between an endorsement for cyber that goes on to a BOP or a package policy <clears throat> and an actual coverage form that was specifically designed for cyber. And I think that a lot of agents out there don't realize just how vast the difference is between those. I mean, yeah. Chubb has a pretty good cyber form. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have many issues with, with Chubb's form. I think, you know, if I were to look across all of the, the, the standard admitted markets, there's probably stands out to me as the best, but there's a lot of others uh, behind them that tout themselves as technology uh, insurers yeah. and Oh my goodness! Like, <laughs> yeah, you're really exposing your own. Number one, it's cheap. You're, yeah, you're exposing your own agency, you know, by selling that and saying, yeah, you're covered for cyber. And then it turns out when they have an event, they're not. And the, the shame of it is, for a lot of those companies, you know, a million dollar limit will probably not be that expensive for really broad, robust coverage. But they think, oh, I've got it in my BOP. I've got a mm -hmm. little sublimit, and it's the the coverage is inadequate, right? There's often even in a small sublimit on those. There's often sublimits for some of the key things like forensics or otherwise that are the big cost drivers. Um, and, you know, and you look at that and you think the limits are inadequate. It's missing a lot of coverage for all the, a lot of the critical coverages. Um, you know, and it often doesn't come with that panel of like vendors that are what you're buying, right? When you have an event, you've got all the experts at all the top firms that know that do this for a living and they can advise you and walk you through it. And if you don't get that, the policy is really not worth anything. Um, so, yeah, there, that is a big issue in the industry. And I think, you know, it's going to take time to kind of convince people that standalone is going to be more appropriate. Um, and, and we see it with even just professional service policies. You know, we saw a lot of lawyers that had a little addition to their LPL policy and thought, well, I'm good enough. And I thought, why would you not buy a standalone policy? Do you really want to erode your LPL limits with a cyber claim? You know, and then you don't have that coverage uh, when you exhaust your limits. So there's there's 
yeah, the issue is everywhere, but, uh, you know, it's moving in the right direction. I think more and more people are, are entertaining it, but it requires kind of that education. Well, I think so what let me you and you I were this. talking, sorry, David, uh, no, be, well, before we got on, I think what you and I were talking about, about the, you know, comparisons, um, you know, plays a huge role. I don't know if you want to get into that now or if we want to talk about that later. No, but, I want to hold, hold off on that for yeah. one second because we are going to go there. But but I do want to ask you a question, you know, because we, we have 10,000 agents listening to this right now. Um, what are what are two or three things they can look for on that standard, you know, whether it you – know, I'm not going to name company names, but on, on, the, on the usual suspect, two or three things that are low-hanging fruit that an agent can look at and say, nope, you don't have coverage because of this, this, or this, that – are immediately addressed in a standalone cyber form. Yeah, I would say in most of the sublimits that are part of, you know, a BOP or something like that, uh, typically we see there's a really low sublimit on forensics, which is one of the most critical pieces of the coverage. You know, the sublimit, even if it was at the full sublimit, uh, is probably still too low, but that that's a critical component. Typically, there's not a lot of coverage for potentially not ransomware or not ransom payments. Uh, and a lot of times there's not business interruption or not the full business interruption coverage from a cyber event. And that can be part of a ransomware event as well, right? It's not just the ransom. It's all these other issues, especially business interruption. And so they're not going to have coverage anywhere else. The only place they're really going to get that is in that standalone policy. And that coverage is, is broader as well because there's dependent business interruption if a third party you rely on goes down, things like that. None of that is going to be covered. And again, I, I, the access to the panel of vendors is usually not even closely related to that. It's just a reimbursement. And that's really what you need. You need a carrier. You've got negotiated rates with all the top vendors that are going to hold your hand through that process and walk you through everything you need to do and keep you out of trouble uh, on top of then obviously having the insurance to cover your loss. So uh, dependent and regular business interruption from a cyber event, uh, ransom payments are often you know not even covered. Um, and then a lot of times like PCI fines and penalties wouldn't be covered in that as well. And if you're taking credit cards, you know, that's critical coverage. I'm glad you said that because I was going to mention it if you didn't. <laughs> I think that is a big one. The fines and penalties piece. And I mean, you're never going to get a huge sublimit for that. But even if, you know, whatever you can get better than what you're going to see on, on many forms. And, and certainly those forms that are in, in the admitted market in most cases. Um, let's talk a little bit, though. I mean, you guys do a really good job of having a, a good base of carriers that you present quotes from in a what I would say is a very seamless process for an agent. Um, and it's very easy to just, I'm a visual person. So when those quotes come through for me to be able to look at that document and, and just scan across and see what's got the mark and what doesn't mm -hmm. to show coverage there makes it very easy for me to determine what I'm going to recommend. And it also makes it very easy for me to show that to a client or a prospect and say, this is what I'm recommending, and here's why. These are all of the holes in the other options. Yep. Yes, this one's $1,000 more, but realistically, you're taking a quarter million more in risk because you don't have a sublimit for this, and it's excluded on the policy or whatever else. So yeah. to talk a little bit about the thought process behind that because I, I do think one thing that I like about it is that it is not 100% quote bind issue. I'm sure you get pushback for that, but I'm of the mindset that if I've got a client buying a product that is as complicated as cyber has the ability to be, I need to have the last look at that if my E&O is going to be on the hook for yep. it. And so I do appreciate that. I don't know how much of a rub you get. I mean, there are people out there that are doing quote bind issue, but literally every time we've done that, we've shredded the coverage form and you're basically setting your client up for a huge issue down the road. Yep. 
and, and again, I'm not saying everybody because there's certainly people out there that, that, that are doing it the right way, but most of the time, you know, your client can't even understand why they had additional premium on a general liability audit. Yeah. Are they really the one that needs to be analyzing cyber forms <laughs> and making buying decisions? Yeah, a lot of that automatic quote bind issue, you know, garbage in, garbage out. People put in the wrong data. They don't know what to ask for. They don't know what coverages they need. So they're not going to necessarily get what they want. Um, and so I think the carriers initially, you know, they were worried about comparative rating because they just felt it's going to be a race to the bottom. And we said, no, 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 we're going to automate a coverage comparison that's going to focus heavily on the different values that each of the carriers are bringing so that the, the agent can help the client navigate and find the right policy for them based on all the different coverage nuances, which there's a lot. Uh, and so the, the value I think that the carriers got comfortable with here was we said, we're going to look at every one of these before they go out. So even if the data comes in and it does auto quote and everything looks fine, we still have someone before every single set of quotes go out, look at it and review it for accuracy to make sure, is this the right industry code? Because that can make a big difference. That could turn something from a quote to a decline. You know, if it's not categorized properly, especially with the white labels that brokers make client facing, clients often put in the wrong code. So we always want to double check and look at everything before we release it uh, and then provide some guidance around that. So that's that's one thing that I think got the carriers a little bit more comfortable with the process that we were actually going to look at it. And it wasn't just a black box of data coming in and out. Um, but really the way we kind of thought about it was on the carrier side, I saw all the efficiencies, you know, inefficiencies in this process. And then when we kind of worked with brokers and figured out, you know, where we saw opportunity, it was, you know, this is small, often for the SME business, it's small revenue. It might be less than 1% of an agent's revenue, right? They don't have a lot of it and it, but it's a high touch, highly complicated process. So how do you simplify that? How do you make it easier? How do you make it so that you can actually afford to go sell it and not spend eight hours on a policy that's going to generate, you know, $500 in, yep. in commission? And so that was automating the coverage comparison and then focusing on you know, service and expertise behind it, right? So a lot of these kind of auto quote facilities are staffed by a licensed agent that, um, you know, when you think about some of the direct plays, they can read from a script, but that's all they can really tell you. So there's no value add there. And so we looked at this and said, we want to support independent agents. You know, we want to go through them. Uh, so that was our chosen path. And then we, we thought we could automate this to make their lives easier. And that's kind of the guiding principle about what we did with the platform and everything else we do is if it makes their life easier, then we want to do it. And so the comparison really saves time. Then we rolled out all the kind of custom branding so that it can bring the retailers branding onto that comparison automatically. So it's easier for them to share with the client. And a lot of this is driven by the feedback from brokers that have been using it for a while. So we expanded the coverage comparison to not only include all the different limits and sublimits and coverage sections, but then a two-page glossary. Uh, and that was, again, driven by this will make it easier for me to share with my client because it'll answer a lot of their questions. It might answer brokers' questions, but it might answer client questions about what is exactly bricking, right? Okay, well, here's a definition, and it quickly shows you what that coverage actually entails. Um, and I so, like you know, it's it's it makes it really easy for a broker to quickly add value to because they can show instant satisfaction to a client of the rates on the screen instantly uh, if they're doing it or if it's through a white label. Uh, but on the back end, they can come quickly to that client and say, hey, I've got a lot more detail behind that. And look, we've marketed this for you and we've showed value. Uh, but they can also do it so efficiently that it's not a huge time waste. And so we view if we do have to spend a lot of time talking about individual risks with newer brokers that we've brought on, we just view that as kind of an investment in the relationship and an investment in training them so that once they've answered this question, they'll know it that, you know, the next, you know, every time after that they, they get asked that same question. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's part of the process, but it's, you know, kind of a combination of, that's why people always ask, are you an MGA? Are you a wholesaler? 
we kind of fell into no man's land of a little bit of both. But really, I view ourselves more as like a digital wholesaler, but we got to focus on marrying all that technology with service and expertise. If you fall on either of those. Yeah. So we do a lot of education, a lot of webinars, a lot of white papers, uh, you know, a, a blog that we publish, you know, three or four or five, six kind of blogs in a month. Uh, on very granular topics that as we get asked about, we'll just start writing them so that we've got it and make it available for everybody. I think one thing that's a huge benefit, I'm sure my peer group would probably think otherwise because I tend to think differently than most of them. Um, But I I think it's a huge benefit that you show the pricing, right? I mean, that to me takes away the shock and awe of me being the one to reveal it. So when I talk to somebody, even if they're irritated because of what the pricing looks like, I know they've already seen it going in and there's never that dance around, oh, what's this really going to cost me or whatever else. It's more a conversation along the lines of you've just seen how much the pricing can vary from one carrier to the other. Let me explain why. And then you give all of the graphics to make it just extremely easy at the point of sale, man. I mean, I think the other thing too, and the carriers are doing this for selfish reasons in addition to goodwill, but... You know, you mentioned the vendors. It doesn't stop there. I mean, there's other resources besides post-claim that are happening in the cyber world. And I mean, you know, one of the ways that I've always addressed this with people is if you had somebody that had to run, you know, if if you hired a company to come in and run an anti-phishing campaign for you, if you hired a company to come in and do all of this and you show all of the benefits that you get just for being a policyholder with these people... It's insane. I mean, you're basically paying less to get insured than you would if you were to line item each one of the items that you have as a value add and buy yeah. those a la carte. Yeah, that's really a, an amazing part of the way this product uh, has evolved in the industry over the last five years uh, fairly aggressively and all the services and value that come with the policy beyond just kind of the post-breach type stuff, that risk management. Uh, it's no longer just you know, you know some static documents that you might be able to get copies of, but it is true cyber risk management tools that are coming with these policies. And, and a lot gets talked about as far as scanning, so the embedded scan that happens at the point of underwriting so that when we provide quotes, we can also provide those security reports from any of the carriers that provide them at that quote level to highlight issues. Hey, you've got an open port. This is how ransomware gets in. Hey, you've got you know out-of-date software. But also throughout the policy period, what we saw with this kind of Microsoft vulnerability that was announced you know, a month or two ago was you know we we got hundreds of notices from the carriers that do have that scanning capability to us saying hey we've just notified your insured that they have this issue and we're here to help them fix it so we know there's a vulnerability we've scanned every single insured we have and we've notified all of them that they have this and we can help them fix it before it turns into a claim and that was kind of unheard of a few years back and so there's real value into into a lot of these extra services that can help you know mitigate claims and once somebody's had one of these events, whether it's ransomware or otherwise, they realize how disruptive this is and how badly they want to avoid yeah. ever having a claim. Well, I can tell you, we write a, a reasonable amount of business with Corvus, and um, I didn't notice it before, but it seems like maybe this is something new that they're doing. I'm getting forwarded mid-year scans on my clients. Yep. Now, maybe that has something to do with the Microsoft trigger. Maybe it's not. Maybe just yep. six months into the policy, they're triggering it to run automatically and make sure everything's the way that they expect it to be. But I got a full-blown report via email yep. saying, here are your results. Hmm. You know, Share it with your client. Da, 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 da. I mean, I think that's great, yeah. and it's another touch point. Yeah, they do a quarterly scan that they'll send to the client and to the broker saying, hey, we sent this to the client just so you've got it. 
Uh, and that's another kind of evolution that now the carriers need to have direct contact with the client at the end of the day so that they can notify them instantly of these problems. And the nice thing is right. it's also going to the person that bought the insurance. It might not necessarily go to the IT team directly. So that it, that person that's in charge of managing their risk and insuring it can bring it to the IT people and say, hey, I was just notified of this. It sparks the right kind of conversation of understanding you know, managing the risk. Oh, and yeah, because the IT guys are going to be defensive <laughs> right out of the yeah. box. It's never their fault. You know, these scans are, are inaccurate, yep. blah, 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 blah. Look, man, I've built enough WordPress websites that I understand how unstable they can be. Yeah. And I can just only speak for our industry, the insurance industry. I'd say probably 75% of the websites are built on a WordPress yep. platform. And if you don't have the right patches in place and everything else, your entire website can get taken yeah. out. Yeah, patch management is, is critical, especially with something like that that's so commonly used and there's constantly vulnerabilities being you know, discovered and then a patch pushed out. But you know, similar to the Microsoft issue is, all right, you've got it. Now you've got to go patch it quickly. And that's also where people fall down. So some of these notices are nice to kind of push them. Hey, you've got to get this resolved. You've got to get this resolved. So you have the benefit of hearing the opinion and the perspective of a lot of agents across the country at this point. What's the pushback that you guys get? Did they have a, you know, that they say, well, you know, I tried to sell it for you, but I just couldn't get this one across the finish line. What are the, what are the big obstacles that they're facing? Because I'm interested in looking into that and then determining what the ways are to overcome objection. For, for those pushbacks. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we do get the, you know, on the retail side, as far as the end insured, we do get the kind of, well, we outsource our payment processing, so we don't need this. Uh, and we have documents we can share with them to show that that's not the truth. You can't outsource the liability. You know, we can look at their contract and request it and say, well, wait a minute, we can point you to the contract you have with your payment processor that shows that this is how much liability there is here that that's totally uncovered unless you have a policy. You know, you know, normally that gets limited to a couple months fees, uh, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things. So that's a common kind of misconception I think we hear from insurers that think, well, I don't need it. Um, you know, often what we try to you know spend time training them on is, okay, let's just remove the data breach component of this for a second. We'll deal with that later. But you know, ask them, you know, if you come in on Monday morning and your computers are locked and you can't do anything, what are you going to do? What's next? Who are you calling? What's your process? You have none of those things lined up like you need to, you know, this, the policy itself is important, but it's not the only piece, right? It's a part of the kind of larger risk management. And that's where we've tried to point agents to. These are like seven, eight, nine, ten low hanging fruit items that you can help clients with that aren't going to cost a lot, but can help improve their risk. And then as part of that, you can get into the conversation of and you should have a policy. And I think if clients are willing to look at those things and figure out what they can do to improve their risk, they're often much more willing to engage then on the back end on the on the policy. So. The payment processing one is a big one. Um, a lot of people, very small businesses, just think, I don't need it. I'm not a target because I'm so small. And that's not really the issue. So the other kind of misconception there is uh, a lot of times hackers are not necessarily targeting specific small businesses. They're targeting a known vulnerability. And that doesn't, you know, they don't care which small business it affects. It's just, we're going to go after this. And as soon as we, you know, get our hooks into anybody, we're going to just, you know, unload some ransomware on them and get what we can out of them. Uh, and so small businesses are more vulnerable to that because they don't have a full team of people deploying patches and looking at all these things. So, um, you know, that's another big one that we get a lot. 
Well, part of the blame there too is on the media. I mean, look at what just happened here um, with you know with the pipeline or whatever that got the. Oh my gosh, dude! People Have you tried are... to get gas. Have I'm you saying, tried to get gas? I, it's I, gotta, insane. I, 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 I saw a hilarious meme too that said, <laughs> "There's no gas shortage. You are literally creating the gas shortage by panic buying gas." Yeah. It's like, the, I mean, but, but seriously though, like people see this stuff on the news and they, you know, they see Colonial or whatever the company is, and I, I think that's yeah. right. But they're like, you know, oh, this is a massive company. That's who this kind of thing happens to. It's like, no, that's not true. That's just what the news covers because they're a massive company. Yeah. But I mean, you know, truthfully, it's happened to hundreds and thousands of businesses, small businesses, every single day throughout the country that nobody ever hears about. But they're the ones who never survive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because the money that you can make off of exploiting that one vulnerability and hitting masses of people as opposed to being laser like focused and targeting is, I mean, that's. Yeah, that's yeah. volume play yeah. right out of the box. Yeah. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, this one draws the you know the, the eyes of everyone in the world from you know uh, the government and everything else. Whereas the smaller ones don't make the news. You know they either pay the ransom or they don't. Um, you know mm-hmm. I think the other kind of just general misconceptions on this, just to touch on them, since I'm kind of in that world right now, is we see a lot of people that don't think the policies cover that much, even though they're really broad in scope. Uh, and a lot of times it's because of things they've seen in the media. Okay, well. You know, there was a claim that got declined and I read it in the New York Times that said cyber insurance doesn't pay. And I'm like, I'm looking at mm-hmm. saying that's because they filed a claim on a property policy that wasn't designed to cover. Right. And there's larger issues with these kind of massive companies. And so there's always a lot of misinformation, I think, in the media yeah. around what's covered, what's not. Uh, I can assure you that the carriers are raising rates because they are paying so many claims. Uh, and because, you know, right. because of that, I think they're doing a very good job of actually paying a lot of claims. Uh, so there's, you know, I think the last piece of misinformation out there is that the cyber insurance community itself is driving these ransomware payments, right? It couldn't be further from the truth. You know, it's a small percentage of a claim, right? When you have a ransom event, you also have the business interruption, the cost to rebuild, all these other payments. So it's a, you know, that payment that or that demand, let's say for a huge company like uh, Colonial Pipeline, let's say they end up having to pay a couple million bucks. Okay, the, the entire claim might cost them $20 million. So it's a very small percentage. Uh, and then you think about there's so many non-buyers of the coverage globally that, you know, you're talking about such a small percentage. And really, I think the, the carriers have done a good job of driving better behavior, driver, driving better risk, providing these security tools, especially for small businesses. So, you know, those are some of the, some additional things we see a lot of that is just kind of not not true. What I'm hearing you say is that if you want to sell this, you need to be more than an insurance salesperson. You need to think like a risk manager for your clients, which is something that we preach literally on every episode of our podcast. People, you've got to quit selling products and start solving problems. And with cyber, and especially using an interface like like ProRiders, it makes it so easy. You can make yourself look so intelligent just by walking in and reading what they print out for you. You don't have to go to the level of understanding that Brian has. Brian's in your corner. Brian is, you know, helping to shape the work product that ProRiders puts out that you ultimately use at the point of sale. And, you know, I got to tell you, man, I mean, those those scans are great. Um, you know, we have used this. I actually had Mike Carbasi from Corvus in my office, um, you know, a few months back. Yeah. 
and we were we were looking at ways that we could just use that product from a prospecting standpoint and do a bulk upload and then just see what's our hit ratio if we have scans on 50 companies and we tell you we're going to use every one of our resources to go after these 50 companies what does that close rate look like when you finally get in front of somebody and you know it made it very easy to have the conversation when you walked in the front door and said you know, hey, I'm here to talk to you about cyber. You know, it's something that everybody's talking about these days, blah, 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 whatever that script looks like. And you have a folder. And if they give you pushback, you slide that scan yeah. across to them. <laughs> any of these look say, familiar? Ah, yeah. yeah, not so fast. Yeah, you- I actually had it. So I don't know if any of yours do this. And I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak or put you on the spot. But I've actually had some of them that come back with a full-blown dark web scan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and that, that's what happened to me. I had one of my clients that said, eh, I don't have, a, I don't have a, an exposure. I'm like, dude, you're a plumbing and HVAC company. Did you read about Target in the news? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, no, no, we don't have that. So there was pushback two or three times. And finally, I'm like, okay, well, if you were going to play that game, here you go. Here's a dark web scan. And these 11 passwords go to your financial institutions. And I know they're accurate because they start with your oldest daughter's first name. So where are we going to go from here? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, the, the scans are very useful in that kind of prospecting uh, tool. We got a lot of people that put in risks that they they're, they haven't even talked to the insured yet, but they're just plugging it in so they can get the reports from all the carriers. They can look at them. They can see some of the differences in them because uh, they do ultimately often spot different things. They'll spot some of the same things in open port they might all catch. Uh, there's other times some catch things that others don't or they value certain things differently. So they're they're specifically keening in on different things that they think are important. So it's nice to get multiple ones as well so that you can quickly look at them and figure out which one's going to be the best use for you in that discussion with the client to kind of turn their head and say, wait a minute, we've identified some stuff here, right? Here's some things that you're you're not passing their kind of grade that you don't have this enabled, you don't have that turned on. You know, it, it kind of turns it into that risk management discussion. And we constantly bring that back to there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that are simple things uh, that you can talk to clients about that they can do that might be no cost or very low cost to turn on like multi-factor that are really important ways to lower the risk. And I think it turns the conversation into managing the risk as opposed to, I'm just trying to sell you a policy. Because that doesn't solve mm-hmm. it. it, doesn't solve everything. I think too that agents have still not fully embraced the fact that cyber is here to stay and it's something that should be brought up in every conversation. And, and where I'm going with this is, businesses that you might not think have a cyber exposure, but really have one. And so I know from my reading that construction companies are targets for cyber. I know that manufacturing companies are targets for cyber. Manufacturing is a little easier for me to digest because I understand that a lot of these, you know, systems now are computerized and you could literally hack one and shut down an entire manufacturing floor from a ransomware standpoint. And that makes all the sense in the world. But why construction so much? I mean, what, why is that a target? Is it just due to the lack of sophistication of the security for these companies? So it makes it very easy or, or what's the story there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of that. And also a lot of construction companies have a high volume of pass-through revenues, so there's more money there to be to be grabbed essentially by some of the bad guys. So it's often, you know, inadequate controls. Uh, and then it's an easy kind of in to say, hey, there's a lot of pass-through here. You know, you see a lot of small, you know, construction companies you've never heard of that have 50, 75 million in revenue because they're doing, say, commercial construction or larger residential projects. And so there's a lot there. Uh, and there's a lot of people interconnecting on a lot of those projects as well. So sometimes when you can get into one, you can get into many. 
uh, through a common system that they're all using and collaborating on. So I think there's a, a few different reasons that they go after them, but I think the money's there. And I think that's kind of makes it an easy target. But usually we see that the controls aren't as good in the construction side as some of the other more sophisticated operations. But, but manufacturing is another one. The business interruption, you know, coverage on a cyber policy for manufacturers is critically important because that's not covered mm-hmm. anywhere else. So they need these cyber policies. And a long time ago, they probably didn't think about that as much. I think that probably more so than other lines of coverage, cyber specifically is one where case studies and actual examples really help at the point of sale because like you had mentioned earlier, David, a lot of people um, don't really think that they have an exposure or can't imagine how it would possibly affect them until they see some, some, real, life, some real life examples. I think it has a, a much stronger impact when related to cyber than maybe some other lines that we deal with on a more regular basis. Yeah, I think that's very, very yeah, well, true. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's like workers' comp. I mean, nobody wants to get serious about safety till one arm bob. You know, I mean, it's just the way that it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know, I don't know how you change that mindset. Here, here's my theory, Brian, on everything involving insurance. Okay, there's not a college course called how to buy insurance for my business. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So we're the ones who are educating all of these people at the point of sale. And the buyers have been conditioned by insurance agents. So the only way we're going to be able to change the way the buyer thinks is to go back and revisit what our approach is and go through one of education and one of explaining risk management and total cost of risk and how that's the number you really should be focusing on because ultimately it's going to control your premium. It's going to control a lot of your risk transfer and other mechanisms that are that are in place in your organization. And so when agents say, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't sell cyber, I just think what I'm hearing is you're just not willing to educate your client or educate yourself to the point that you're comfortable in going out and educating your client. Yeah. And as long as the majority of the people keep doing that way, it's going to be a whole lot easier on me to sell cyber to people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it creates the opportunity, right? We've, I've never in all the years that we've had the company, never had an agent that said, I need help selling this to the client because I'm getting resistance where we got on the phone with them, not never not walked away with a sale because it's the right. entire conversation starts with, talking about their controls, understanding you know what they want to tell you about their company and where they view the risk is, and then talking about the things that they didn't realize that are a big risk for them that are covered under these policies, and then explaining you know a lot of granular detail around all this. And again, those are conversations that even if it's a tiny little account that's less than $1,000 in premium, we're happy to get on the phone for an hour with the client and their agent because we're educating everybody in the process. You know, We try to do them in mass scale on webinars and otherwise, but We'll do those on individual accounts because everyone's focused. The people that were maybe less likely to kind of figure this out on their own when they have a live risk on their desk and it's a client and it's meaningful and they want to bind it. And it might mean that they get all the other uh, policies for this client and all the other coverages. You know, they're totally invested in it at that point. And so we, you know, it's we, we do it all day, every day. So it's like secondhand. We can jump on a call at a moment's notice and, and talk through it with a client and get them to the point where they understand, okay, I, I didn't understand all my exposures. Now I have a better sense. And now you're telling me this policy covers a bunch of these things that you just pointed out. Yes, we definitely want to go forward with that. What would you say there is one, some, sorry, David, what would you say is one like main thing that people need to keep in mind when they're, when they're shopping for cyber insurance? You know, at the end of the day, the, the devil's in the detail. And so there's a lot of um, little nuances in the coverage that, if you, there's plenty of people that have access to these products, right? The problem is if you don't mm-hmm. really understand the detail, uh, that's where people go wrong and they think, oh, I've fallen in love with XYZ carrier 
uh, I'm fine. This is good. This is good enough. And what they don't realize is, well, that carrier is not pay on, you know, they're not, it's a reimbursement policy for ransom. And what if that client doesn't have the funds to pay it? You know, you need a policy that's going to be pay on behalf. Well, if, if you're uneducated, you think, well, this is a broad coverage. They've sold me on it. I'm selling this. Uh, when you don't know the kind of detail in those coverages, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble by selling something that really isn't what you thought it was or what a client thought it was, right? And then, then there can still, while there still could be a covered claim, they still be, could be coming after you or unhappy uh, with what they got. So that's that's probably the biggest issue we see is just kind of not understanding all the detail um, behind it. Um, there's probably plenty of other things we could point out, but but that's probably the biggest one. So that's a pretty good segue to what my question was, and that is there's a lot of things covered by cyber policies that you might not think are covered by a cyber policy. Paper records in certain situations are one of those. Yeah. What would you say like the top three things are that an agent would be surprised by that a cyber policy covers? Um, you know, I think potentially bodily injury and property damage. I don't think people kind of thought about that with cyber, and there's certainly carriers that are able to provide those coverages. Uh, and there's certainly things that should be looked at more for specific risks that have a bigger exposure in that space, healthcare risks, uh, biomed, you know, implanted devices, things like that, you know, pacemakers, insulin pumps, things like that. Um, I have a friend of mine right now, and you may even know about this account because I think that you're involved in it, but they do an autonomous uh, lawnmower, mm -hmm. right? And they need bodily injury from the cyber like aspect of that. Yeah, it's like a Roomba for your lawn. Yep. <laughs> and they're having a hard time finding a carrier that will give bodily injury on the cyber policy. But based on how that thing's set up, the GL may not pick up the bodily injury depending on what caused the thing to go rogue. Yep. Yeah. So it should be something that hmm. you're, you're getting that coverage. And that's something that, you know, for us, if we've got a good relationship with the cyber markets, you know, it can be addressed. It can be underwritten too. And it can be added if it's not normally standard part of their appetite you know things can still be be manuscripted outside of that so that's that's one i think that people don't realize about um another one is just kind of uh, the client funds coverage so you've got social engineering and crime coverage uh but some of the policies but not all also apply to client funds so if you're an insurance agent you know and you've got funds held in escrow a law firm uh you know a bookkeeping firm that might have access to client funds a lot of times it's, you know, each policy is very different in how they word that. And some don't, they only apply to your operational funds, not third-party funds in your care, custody, and control, and others do. And so that's, I think, a place where people go wrong and don't realize for certain risks that that's going to be much more important coverage to have. Uh, so that's one I think people miss. And then another one that people just aren't always as, as aware of is bricking. Um, you know, the, the kind of hardware coverage for, for devices that get destroyed in, in a hack. Um, you know, there's coverage under the cyber policies for that, and that can be significant. Uh, if you have to throw out all your laptops or a bunch of servers, you know, having that policy reimburse you on top of everything else you had to deal with is just, you know, that could be another $50,000 in hardware replacement costs that you didn't have elsewhere, if, or if you didn't have the right cyber policy, you wouldn't have had. Um, you know, I think pretty much all the policies, or all, at least all the good policies now extend to BYOD. Uh, certainly with the pandemic, anyone who hadn't been doing it and everyone went kind of remote uh, for a period of time, that was important to make sure the policies were clear that they covered that as well. Um, and then I think the reimbursement aspect versus pay on behalf is one that gets missed a lot by people that are uneducated. So, you know, pay on behalf is going to be really important if you have a ransomware event. And if you have to come up with $500,000, you know, for a ransom payment on a moment's notice, right, and you've got a limited amount of time, you might not have that cash in your operational account in, you know, extra funds to just go write a check. 
Uh, and that's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah. So it's you know that's a, that's a that's a problem that people might not realize when they're buying a policy. Some some pay on behalf, some don't. And so good carriers understand this. Good brokers would understand it. That's an important piece because you know it's also you might have a seventy-two hour window to get all this done. Uh, you also then have to go get uh, you know transfer all this into Bitcoin. Like if you're in the with the wrong carrier, you know you're kind of on your own and seeking reimbursement. Whereas if you're with a good carrier, they're walking you through that. They've got all the vendors lined up that can you know have Bitcoin available uh, and can go pay it pay it for you, um, you know, with the advice of attorneys to make sure that it's legally allowable, which is a whole nother kind of question. So uh, that's, I think, an important piece that gets missed a lot uh, as far as the difference in some of the coverages. Oh, this is a cheap policy. I want to go with that one. Well, here's also a difference mm-hmm. that might be a big difference at the end of the day if you did experience a ransomware event. And would you rather the, po- the carrier just pay that for you? Um, and then that last piece that goes back to kind of misinformation uh, I do try to remind people that you know, the carriers don't ultimately decide to pay these ransoms. It's the insured. Um, and so it's not the carriers that are driving that. It's the insured that has to decide at the end of the day, can we recover from our backups when we're working with expert forensics firms and expert lawyers that this is what they do and they're advising us. And if they're, you know, they've got shareholders, they've got to take into account their fiduciary duty in this, in this kind of area of what's best for us. Do I pay a $500,000 ransom? Uh, to get back up and running a lot faster, even though I don't want to? Or do I say no, and it snowballs into a much bigger issue, and it takes us much longer to recover? You know, am I now at risk uh, because I get, you know, a director's and officer's claim that we mismanaged this and we made the wrong decisions in the process? So there's there's a bunch of nuances in, into these coverages, but mm-hmm. those are a couple of the key ones, I would say. I think another one, and, and I haven't heard us mention this yet, but it's the waiting period for the business income, too. That's all over the board, man, depending yeah. on who's who's <laughs> quoting it. Speak to that for a little bit and why that's so important. I mean, other than the obvious. Yeah, you know, you know, a lot of the policies might be, you know, some go down to zero, some are at kind of six hours, eight hours, twelve hours. You know, it's there's not a lot of times, you know, in the past, there was not a lot of times that businesses would be down for that long. But now when you start to look at ransomware events like CNA got hit earlier this year, I think everyone's already forgotten about that one. But you know, they were they had experienced a significant disruption. You know, this went on for basically- Significant in the fact that the agents couldn't even access the website. Exactly, right? So there's a hmm. the downstream effect. And so having a policy, let's say let's say that you're an agent and that's you only work with that carrier or that vendor um, and you're out and you're out for four or five days and you can't do anything. You know, having that dependent business interruption coverage is gonna, is gonna be important uh, because that's out of your control. And the last thing you wanna do is have to rely on a third party to try to make you whole. Let your policy take care of that, and then they can they can uh, you know subrogate against them if necessary. But so the waiting period is is interesting because in these ransomware events, we're now seeing much more downtime uh, than you saw traditionally in a lot of outages that were just kind of some sort of issue, a denial of service attack or something that caused an outage for three, four, or five hours. You know, it's rare that you'd see companies go down for extended periods of time. But now with ransomware, it's like they have to shut down, they have to unplug. They have to do an investigation before they can start to turn things back on. And so it becomes a much longer, you know, downtime. And so I would say in less sophisticated policies with carriers that aren't as good, you'll see much longer waiting periods. Uh, and, and that's another thing where I think people that just buy a policy from their carrier that they're used to buying other coverages from that aren't necessarily cyber experts or cyber standalone shops, you know, they might get a longer waiting period on that as well. So I have a technical question for you. You should be able to answer this one with relative ease based on your experience, but I don't think that my peer group 
thinks through this as much as they need to, at least, you know, for people who haven't dabbled or I shouldn't say dabbled, but written, um, a considerable amount of, of professional liability or cyber directors and officers or any of that. But one of the things that's happened over the last 15 years is the migration away from a regular claims made form to a claims made and reported form. Can you talk about what the differences are in those two forms and why the carriers have moved towards claims made and reported? Yeah, I think, you know, so claims, it seems somewhat self-explanatory, but the devil again is in the detail. So when you've got claims made and reported, that's going to be a little bit tighter requirement than claims made. Uh, claims made ties back to when the claim was made against you and where the policy period is. Whereas claims made and reported means the claim has to be made during the policy period and you have to report it to the carrier within that policy period or a period, a defined period within the expiration of that policy, maybe 30 days. Um, and so there are times specifically, you know, it's a challenge in cyber when you think about it, because sometimes there's these, you know, you're under attack all day, every day. You could be reporting potential issues constantly if you really want it to be super duper safe. It might be overkill, but there's these challenges of, is this really an incident that's going to bubble into a, a material claim, or is this just another kind of nuisance type issue, but it's just something we've got to deal with. Uh, and so it's important to make sure that when you're buying these policies, looking at that provision, if it's claims made and reported towards the end of each policy period, you've got to be thinking about are any of these things, things that we need to put the carrier on notice for, because the last thing you want is to renew the policy six months down the line, that little incident turns into a bigger incident. And now you go back and try to report it to the carrier and they're going to decline it and say, no, 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 you had to report that within the expiration of the policy or within 30 days of the expiration of the policy. So there's no coverage. You know, you prejudice us, you know, whatever the case may be. Yeah, I haven't seen carriers be super strict on that language currently. I think there's a general acceptance in the cyber community on the underwriting side that there are challenges here to understand what was known and what should have been known that could turn into something larger. Uh, the same thing kind of occurs with some of these cyber risk reports, right? You give a client a cyber risk report, do you now put knowledge in their hand that there's a known issue if it identifies something? And another carrier that doesn't ask and doesn't care, you know, is this something that now becomes an issue? So there's there are a lot of challenges with knowledge uh, and the timing of it. So I would say that ultimately, at the end of the day, before you renew coverage, you should be looking at any incidents that occurred throughout the year. And if anything needs to be reported, even if on a potential basis, just to make sure that you've kind of covered yourself and you don't potentially walk into a scenario where it turns into a bigger issue later uh, and you miss it. But claims made and claims made and reported. Certainly claims made is going to be a little bit broader in that it just ties back to the date that the claim was made against you. Uh, yeah. So the way that it was explained to me specifically in the technology world is that these people have God complexes and think they can fix everything. So an issue will be brought up to them and they think they're going to handle it internally. And then nine months down the road, a $10,000 issue is now a $100,000 issue and they can't fix it anymore. And now they want to go and report it to the carrier. And the carrier's like, well, wait a minute, why didn't you bring us in here when this thing was 10,000 and we could have mitigated our own payout. Yeah. And instead you held on to it. You're the one who did this. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You're out of luck at this point. Yeah. In the tech ENO world, it's super complicated on a lot of these larger software, you know, integration type deals where there's scope creep and right, the clients represents that they've got XYZ in place and they don't always actually have that. And then that's why it starts taking longer for the vendor to do whatever they said they were going to do. So the client starts getting unhappy that it's taking longer and it starts costing more. And the vendor saying, Well, wait a minute, you represented that you had all these things in place and you really don't. And that's why it's taking longer and that's why it's costing more. And so you get this general dissatisfaction that goes on for quite some time and builds and builds and builds. And then all of a sudden it turns into a huge claim. And ultimately that claim is 
we want our money back because it's been three years and we don't have what you promised. And even if you're close, like we're done, we're moving on and we want our money back and we want damages because we could have had this done two years ago. So they turn into fairly significant claims that drag on for quite some time mm -hmm. to litigate on top of that. Well, I'm going to tell you, man, you brought up a good point, and this is something that I say to every single one of my clients and have for literally almost 20 years now, and that is when you're filling out these applications for management liability and, and professional and cyber and all of that, the in many cases, the application becomes a material part of the policy. So you don't need to be taking any shortcuts. It's not, hey, leave that blank. I'm the agent. I'll fill that out when you send it over. Just go ahead and sign and I'll make sure it's right. Or any of the other shortcuts that we all know happen. You know, your client needs to sit down and answer things the right way. And, you know, just because they may not have something doesn't mean the deal doesn't get done. It yeah. doesn't mean that the pricing skyrockets. But to your point, you know, in the event of a claim, it could be the difference between whether or not there's coverage. Yeah. And that goes back to the risk management approach that you're talking about. If you're if you're bringing that approach to your clients and advising them in that manner, I think you're going to provide better service at the end of the day than somebody else that's just trying to push them over the hump. Just sign it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And we'll, we'll move on. And, and, you know, I've collected my commission and I'm done. Um, so that's that's a challenge, um, you know, that as if the cyber market wasn't challenging enough um, to have to deal with all the other right. uh, extraneous issues. Throw the agents in the mix. They'll really complicate it for you. We're overachievers <laughs> when it comes to that. Yeah. Good grief. Well, listen, man, I want to be respectful of your time. We were a little late getting started, but I want to tell everybody we actually have a section of our website built out that will show a webinar and demo of pro writers product. If you go to killingcommercial.com forward slash QBI for quote bind issue, it's one of the webinars that's there. And there's actually a ton of other resources that we've given you for absolutely free that you can use. And if you want to get in touch with Brian and, and talk about doing business with them, you can do that directly from that uh, area as well. I get no compensation from pro writers whatsoever. I say this in front of Brian, he'll nod and confirm that. So I'm doing nothing except trying to help educate our agent base and our listeners and get you guys in front of people that can help you and help you get business done in an efficient manner. I think that with the market hardening, that it's become a very convenient excuse for wholesale brokers that typically handle this stuff for our agencies to just blame it on the hard market and let service go by the wayside. I'm never going to accept that as the status quo in my firm, and I wouldn't expect you to do it in yours. That's why having an interface where you can go on, enter the basic information, and get quotes from literally five to seven carriers, depending on who wants to play, a summary of everything they're offering you, plus never thought I'd say this word when I woke up this morning, but a glossary <laughs> of the mm. definitions. You know, you, I just can't guy. find it. Yeah, I, I can't find a downside to doing business with pro riders. And it's not like I'm digging to try, but you guys make it really, really easy on us. And I, I have to tell you, you know, sincerely, thank you. I'm glad glad I stumbled onto you yeah. um, because it's going to be make a big difference in our agency moving forward, I can assure yeah, you. Yeah, and we're, you know, that's our bread and butter is working through independent agents all over the country. You know, so we're in all 50 states. We're a surplus lines broker in all 50 states in D.C., so, you know, we handle all the taxes, uh, trying to make it, you know, that, that compliance piece, take that off everyone's table and deal with that. And, you know, it's, it, we're always taking feedback from everyone that is appointed to say, hey, anything you say that was going to make your life easier, we're going to add it to the list and start working on it. Um, but it's, you know, we've, we've meant to make it easy. And it's, you know, it's interesting as the, the platform has evolved, 
to a true platform that any size risk comes through because brokers use that to log it in with all the markets and then we kind of manage it in there. You know, we've just seen, you know, an explosion of growth by the number of people that have signed up, uh, the, you know, the amount of volume that's coming through. Uh, but ultimately, when we look at it, we started to do some analysis and kind of the walk away from that was, you know, we think we're ultimately saving the end customer premium because, you know, if you're going to do work on your house and you're going to go to one contractor, you're going to get a price, even if you know he's a good guy. But if you go to eight or nine contractors, you're probably going to find some better pricing uh, just by, you know, the law of large numbers. And so we think we're ultimately saving time. We're kind of bringing efficiencies to the retail broker. Uh, but we're also helping them with the coverage comparison, find the right one for the client and, and, and then marry that with service and expertise. I think that's where we're kind of picking up a lot of business uh, from all over the place. That's traditionally either in the direct market uh, or through other wholesalers that, you know, aren't able to service it as quickly because they don't have the platform that we've got. So they can't instant quote. And so we looked at it and thought, even if you have a carrier that instant quotes in their own kind of portal, right? A lot of times that's 50-50, whether you're going to get an instant quote versus a referral. And that might take some time. Whereas in our platform, because we have so many markets, you know, 97% of the time we have at least one auto quote uh, on cyber risks. And typically 85% of the time we've got three to eight options. Uh, and so I think that makes a big difference in kind of in that auto quote uh, world to be able to quickly come back and say within minutes, you've got a coverage comparison and, and bindable quotes on your desk. So here's something that we haven't brought up and I'd be remiss for not mentioning it. So quickly before we go, I understand how these things get built. I can't build one, but I get the process behind it. And what you guys have built as your engine could easily be replicable across other offerings in terms of lines of coverage. What do you have in the future that you're able to share right now that's going to be rolling down the pipeline? Yeah, so it's a good point. So that's ultimately our goal has been to move beyond cyber. We do, as a wholesale broker, work in all E&O, D&O lines and all the sub products, so all those kind of specialties. So we're certainly looking at a broad E&O appetite. Miscellaneous E&O is kind of on the horizon, and we may break that down into some smaller, large classes. Uh, but next up, so we launched Tech E&O this year, so that's a combo tech and cyber. So that's available on the platform, and we're working on DNO and EPL for private and nonprofit companies. So that's next. Uh, that we hope to have live before the end of the year, uh, and then next year we'll probably tackle a bunch of uh, you know miscellaneous ENO you know products within that. Good deal. Good deal. Well, listen, Brian, I appreciate you taking an hour to come and talk with us. This is great conversation. I'm sure that plenty of people are going to reach out to you, especially if they're as frustrated as what we are on current market conditions and response times. Yeah. So uh, everybody, again, killingcommercial.com forward slash QBI. Check it out because not only do we show you how we're using pro writers, but we give you a strategy across a myriad of quote bind issue products that you can use to build passive revenue revenue in your agency. I'm going to wrap it up, man. I hope you guys have a good week and we will catch you soon. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>